We read scripture this morning from James chapter 1. We read this chapter along with our treatment of Lord's Day 44, addressing the 10th commandment, Thou shalt not covet. We hear the inspired word of God in James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, He is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, 
This man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we read this in connection with our treatment of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 44, question and answers 113, 14, and 15. It's found in the back of our Psalters on page 24. Lord's Day 44, question 113. What doth the Tenth Commandment require of us? That even the smallest inclination or thought, contrary to any of God's commandments, never rise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. But can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? No. But even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience. Yet so, that with a sincere resolution, they begin to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached, since no man in this life can keep them? First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God, till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. Beloved in our our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to the conclusion of our treatment of the law. We understand that God provides the Ten Commandments in a perfect order. And as we began with the first commandment, we noted that that commandment really establishes the foundation, the basis for all of the other commandments. Jehovah God is one God, and He alone must be served. The first table addresses that love for God and that service of Jehovah. But the second table of the law focused on our love that we owe our neighbor. And now as we come to the 10th commandment, we recognize again how this commandment fits perfectly as the conclusion of the entire law. Just as God is God alone, serves as the beginning, so thou shalt not covet, serves as an appropriate conclusion to the law. It's possible that some might hear the law read, and as they hear the law, and as they think upon the various commandments, they come to the conclusion, but... I've not violated those commandments. I'm able to maintain a perfect walk with God. And they're convinced in their own mind that they have been keeping and maintaining those commandments. There's even the possibility that a wicked, unregenerate man might externally hear the commandments and be convicted that he too, he hasn't stolen, he hasn't committed adultery, he's honest, he's truthful in his dealings, and he walks away feeling as though He's somewhat justified. That was the confession of the rich young ruler, you remember, back in Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22. You recall he came to Jesus with this question. What good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus responded, if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And then he asked, which? And Jesus responded with a listing in no certain order of the commandments. Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And remember the response of that young man? With sincerity he said, but I've done that. I've kept all these commandments from my youth up. What lack I yet? And Jesus' response then was, If thou wilt be perfect, go, sell that thou hast, and give to the poor. Jesus gets at the heart. Covetousness. The man was covetous. And the man desired riches. He loved money. And so Jesus then addresses specifically that concern. And that man not only was characteristic of many in Jesus' day, he's characteristic of you and me and many in our day. We're convinced that we've kept the law. We've maintained the commandments. Remember the Pharisees? They built a whole theology around the outward keeping of the law. And today there are those too that claim, I've attained perfection. I'm able to go forward without having to worry about sin. The devil isn't really a threat to me any longer. I keep the law. We find those individuals scattered through churches. We find them in various areas where especially that perfectionism is prone, Pentecostalism, Roman Catholic Church. But the Tenth Commandment addresses that, and it pierces as a knife into our soul. And it exposes us as to our inner thoughts and our inner desires. Outwardly, yes, I may have put on a good show, but what about my heart? And we're given to see that our heart is laid bare. And that which God requires and desires is obedience from the heart. So that in the 10th commandment, God really comes to you and me and God says, I'm not satisfied merely with outward obedience. Here's the key to the entire law from the heart. You need to be walking with a heart that loves God and loves the neighbor and shows that spirit. James here gets that then in verses 14 and 15. The reality of sin. What is sin in our lives? The dynamics of sin are set forth here. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. That's the horror. We don't have anyone else to blame. We know our own natures and how inclined our own natures are to lust and then to pursue something, to walk in the ways of sin and to know that the end of such a one is death. And so, beloved, we look at the wonder of the gospel and the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ and how this commandment directs us to the cross. The Tenth Commandment, noting, first of all, the principle, finally, the prohibition, and Second, and finally, the demand. The principle, the prohibition, and the demand. The principle behind this commandment is similar to others, but it has to do with the reality that Jehovah God demands of us obedience with our whole heart as the sovereign God of heaven and earth. Covetousness is the sin of desiring in my heart something that God has not been pleased to give to me. 
the sovereign God of heaven and earth, the one who knows all things, who knows me, who knows my situation, my circumstance, has not been pleased to give me something. But I want it. And so I'm not content. Now in that sense, we understand that coveting can refer to all kinds of things. While there's a good sense in which coveting is spoken of in the Bible, that we're to covet earnestly the best gifts, we're to pursue those things that are holy, those things that are honorable, there are times when we covet that which either sinful or that which God has not been pleased to give us. We covet the gifts and abilities of others. We covet the position of some. Perhaps we want to be an elder or we want to be a school board member or our desire is to serve in some capacity of leadership within the church or school. We look at the gifts that God gives one. Perhaps it's to pray and we desire to have that gift. We want to be able to pray with more meaning and more significance in our life. Perhaps it's the gift that one has to speak in public. And again, these things are not evil in themselves, but we become covetous of that individual and we desire what they have been given. Perhaps God made us short and we covet then the height that God gives to others. Maybe God has not given us much in terms of athletic ability and so we covet the athletic ability that we see in others. Maybe school comes hard for us whereas the other person, they can read a book and they remember almost the whole book and we're covetous of that ability to be able to read with understanding and to be able to remember it. So many different aspects of our life are comprised with this coveting. We covet maybe the looks of another that we haven't been given. We covet the health, the strength of another as we have difficulties and struggles in certain areas. And so quickly we covet the success of one in his business or another in the home. We spend a lot of time coveting and we could go on and on and on. So much is this a part of our lives that it sometimes starts taking on our dreams and pretty soon our dreams, our fantasies, desiring things that we don't have, things that we would desire and vast quantities of time are wasted with this coveting. Now there are basic principles then that we need to be aware of. Again, very common principles that we hear again and again. God is sovereign. The almighty God is Jehovah. And God rules the whole universe as the sovereign God of heaven and earth. Everything comes from his hand. Now we confess that with regard to the eighth commandment. We confessed it with regard to many of the other commandments that God is the one that's ruling everything in our lives and he's doing so for our good and for his glory. Whatever he does, we confess, is for our good. Now it's hard for us to get our mind wrapped around that at times. And that's where the sin, the lust, the coveting begins to enter in. A number of names that you children are familiar with and young people are familiar with emphasize this truth. What names do we give to God? We call God our Father. What does it mean to be a father? A father loves his children. And a father cares for his children. A father provides for his children. A father protects his children. A father is committed to giving his children everything that they need and not withholding any good thing from them. Jehovah God is our father. He's willing 
And he's able, as Almighty God, to grant unto us as his children everything that we need as we go down life's pathway. What a beautiful truth. The more we understand the fatherhood of God and the truth of that name and concept, the more that truth undergirds our walk with him. But similar and related, he's our shepherd. Again, what is a shepherd? A shepherd cares for the sheep, protects them, guides them, leads them. A shepherd loves those sheep and does everything in his power to see to it the sheep have everything that they need. The Lord is my shepherd. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? That as my shepherd, he loves me and he's guiding me in a perfect way. He knows everything that's necessary. He knows all the circumstances of my life. And now he's leading me in that way that is for my good and that is for his glory. Lord, another name. He's my Lord. And the implication of that is that a Lord has servants, those who are subject to him. And as he rules them, he does so in a manner that is for, again, their good, leading and guiding them in the way perfect, through instruction, through correction, through rebuke, through admonition, as Lord, loving and caring for the servants and providing them with everything they need to flourish in the calling that is theirs to serve him. As we stand before the wonder of Jehovah God and his sovereign care for his children, confessing his love that is from eternity to eternity, we recognize that God tells us again and again that we're only in this world for a brief time, some 70, 80, 90 years. And as we're in the midst of this world, we know that we can't take anything with us once we die. And so Jehovah God, as our Father, as our Shepherd, and as our Lord, is so guiding and ruling our lives as we walk through life's pilgrimage in such a way that He's preparing us for something far glorious. He's preparing us for heaven and for the glory that waits. And He knows we can't take anything with us when we die. We don't want to take earthly things with us to heaven because heaven is so glorious. The earthly pales in comparison. It cannot begin to compare. This God is your God. This God is my God. And this God who knows all that's necessary to lead and prepare us for a perfect place in glory is the one directing our lives. He's the one that ordains. You don't need this. Or you do need this. He's the one that ordains that this is necessary for you in order to give you that peace and that grace that's necessary. This God tells you and tells me, you don't have to worry. Don't be anxious. All that worry, all that anxiety is for nothing because I'm with you and I love you and I care for you. And I'm the one guiding you and giving you the fullness of peace. A peace that surpasses understanding. A peace that enables you to rest in the knowledge that you are mine and I am yours and I will not allow you to go hungry. I will not allow any of your needs to go unsupplied. I will provide you all that is necessary. Now, beloved, if only we would believe this, we wouldn't for a moment covet. What is there more that we need 
that our Heavenly Father has not ordained already to provide us with. But secondly, our covetousness then flows from this. We don't really believe that God is God. We don't really believe that our Father really is directing everything in love for us. Foolishly, we convince ourselves that we would be happier if only we had more things. So that if only we had this or if only we had that, then, then our life would be more fulfilling and more content. And so we convince ourselves that we need then need to get busy and we need to try to get as much as we can. Get our hands on as much earthly goods as we can because that's the way that we're going to be truly joyful and happy. Even though God again and again says no, no, there's no joy in the pursuit of the things of this earth as in, them, in themselves. Even as Paul speaks in Philippians 4.11, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. It's as though we're trying to prove God wrong. We're like, no, God, you don't understand. I really do need this, and I really do want this. And if I don't get this, I can't really have true joy and happiness in my life. Remember the context there of Paul's words of Philippians. The saints had sent Paul a generous gift of money because he had so little. Paul thanks them for the money that they sent him. But then Paul tells them, listen, this gift of money, it doesn't supply ultimately any want because I didn't really have any need. I had no desires. I'm thankful that you were thinking of me, thankful for your providing it for me, but I am content with very little or even nothing. And Paul confesses then, I learned in prison. I learned in the circumstances in which I found myself to lean on my heavenly Father, to know that God is faithful, and God taught me contentment. And that contentment is the opposite of covetousness. Contentment is the grace for which we pray. Contentment is to understand I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, loves me. He cares about me. And He's watching over me. He's ruling all things as the ascended Lord. And He's the one who knows my situation. He knows that I'm a pilgrim. I'm a stranger. That I'm only passing through. And he knows what little I have must be used in the pursuit of the will of God and the kingdom of God. And he has given me treasures, treasures that far outweigh anything that I could ever find here below. That, beloved, is contentment. And we're to have contentment with regard to the whole of our life, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation of our life. Some of us have very difficult pathways to walk. And sometimes as I talk with some of you and I get to know the burdens that you bear, I'm overwhelmed myself. I can't imagine. How can you go forward? How are you able to do it? Daily, you're required to go forward in circumstances, situations that would consume another and would cause that one to be despairing. But Jehovah God, in His marvelous grace, provides and he leads us through health circumstances, through troubles in marriage, troubles in the home, troubles in the family. He leads us through circumstances of loneliness and difficulties, all of which he's ordained. 
his loving hand surrounding us, protecting us, guiding us, and in his inscrutable wisdom, knowing this is the only way, the only way for me, because this is his way, and he's my shepherd, he's my father, he's my Lord, he knows what's necessary for me to prepare me for glory. That contentment, beloved, comes only in the way of prayer. And God gives that contentment, and God provides it. It's a grace that God gives as God works in our hearts, and he makes us know that peace, that blessed assurance that we're his, and he is mine. This commandment sets forth the heart, then, of the law in that regard. If we can't keep the 10th commandment, we break all the other commandments. If we, can't keep the ten, if we can keep the 10th commandment, then we keep all the law. Now we stand before this commandment and we realize, I can't. I fail. I covet. My nature is sinful. My nature doesn't trust like I should. God is saying to you and to me, beloved, my kingdom is first. And you are to love me and seek my kingdom and everything that's therein above all else. And instead what happens is we're set on ourselves. We're set on making our business prosperous. We're set on pursuing our own success and our own promotion of our own name. And then we get caught up in it. And we think, but now I need to work on Sunday as well because otherwise I'll never get ahead. And we begin breaking the other commandments of God because of our failure to put our trust in Him. James uses here the figure of a mirror at the conclusion of the chapter. And he uses that figure as the law. We look at the law, and the law serves as a mirror to look into our hearts. And while the other commandments are that which we look at, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, convicts us. The others, outwardly we can kind of try to justify and wiggle our way around, but then thou shalt not covet strikes to the heart, and it gets us. And what do we see in the mirror? We see one who's setting his heart, her heart, on the things that it's not been God's will to give us. We see discontentment. We see instead of living for the things of God's kingdom, I'm living for myself. I desire my neighbor's house. I desire my neighbor's wife. I desire my neighbor's livestock, my neighbor's land, and all kinds of other things. And how easy it is for me to look around and to become discontent with my lot and to see that the grass is greener somewhere else. If only I had that. If only I had this. We work with men. We work with women. We get to know them. And pretty soon we start wishing that our husband, our wife, was as understanding, as compassionate, as sympathetic as that man, that woman is. And the devil starts working temptations and gets hold of us and begins to drive a wedge between us and our spouse. Coveting, beloved, is a great evil that we need to fight with all of our might. Thou shalt not covet. And the catechism makes it extremely humbling that we are forbidden even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments. And we see the connection there between the 10th commandment and all the other commandments. 
What is it that leads us to violate the other commandments? It's precisely this. We start looking at something that God's not given us and now we steal it. We start desiring something and pretty soon we commit adultery. We must trust the work of God in our lives and submit to His will and seek after righteousness. The Catechism says even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of this obedience. And the Catechism there is speaking of converted individuals. Speaking of those who have been given new life from above. We who are God's children who have been converted by a wonder of God's grace. We're not talking here about the unregenerate. We're talking about those who are regenerate. Can I keep the whole law of God perfectly? And the answer is no, I can't. This question and answer of the catechism destroys all perfectionism. That can be a real threat in our own minds at times. And sometimes, very practically, it shows it in this way. We're not really praying for the forgiveness of sins as we ought. We think of ourselves more highly than others, and we become proud and boastful. If someone would ask us, do you think that you're perfect? We'd say, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't. But we're living like it. We're acting like it. But we hear of the threat, too, on the radio, on television broadcasts, especially Pentecostal preachers setting forth the idea that if only you get the second blessing, then once you get that second blessing, you have a victorious life. There's no more struggles. There's no more challenges. And if you don't experience it, it's because your faith isn't strong enough. Now, we don't believe that heresy. We reject that heresy. There's a threat of Roman Catholicism that's inherent in our nature and it continues to permeate Reformed and Presbyterian churches in our day. Sin is just a matter of the act. It's not really a matter of the heart. It's just a matter of imitation. And as long as we can control our outward actions, we've done it. We've accomplished what's necessary. We don't have to worry about our thoughts. And increasingly we hear that applied to sexual sins, that the issue is not the lust, but it's acting on it. And so homosexual individuals are fine so long as they don't act on those desires that they have. That becomes something that we get caught up into pretty soon. That we're not taking seriously the horror and the sinfulness of our thoughts, our lusts. We don't take heed to the reality that those lusts, if we allow them to take hold, will press our lives in the service of sin and death. And that's what James here warns about. Every man, when he is tempted, is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And that lust, if it's allowed to stay there, conceives and continues to develop and grows more sin and pulls us down the path that leads to destruction. This question and answer destroys all Phariseeism. It destroys, destroys all perfectionism. There's no room for pride. There's no room for puffing ourselves up above others. The Pharisees did not know a burning in their heart for the forgiveness that was necessary through Jesus Christ and the cross. They thought of themselves as capable of earning their own salvation. And they were cruel then toward others. There was no mercy. There was no grace reflected in their lives because they esteemed themselves above others. And again, so quickly, that can take hold of us. We become proud and we become cruel toward those around us. But beloved, this commandment gets at the heart. 
And the reflection that we are to see in ourselves is this. Total depravity clings yet to my nature. And due to that depravity that yet is in my nature, even though I'm redeemed, even though I'm regenerated, I cannot keep God's commandments perfectly. That depravity corrupts, it pollutes my works. So that as sad as it may seem, the holiest of men just has but that small beginning of new obedience. So, beloved, we stand at the conclusion of the law. And what is our assessment with regard to ourselves? We look at the mirror. And James says, as you look in the mirror, you behold yourself. Don't just walk away now and forget who and what you are. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. We look in that mirror and we see who we are. And it drives us to the cross. It works in us a desire to flee sin. And it works in us that one conclusion. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God for the gift of a Savior, for Jesus Christ. We don't conclude our treatment, beloved, with this. Some of you are up here because you've escaped these commandments. Others you over here because you've been able to be faithful in these other areas. And yet others are on this level. So that we begin to divide ourselves according to the various commandments that we've broken. And then we begin to become proud and think, but yeah, it's true, you know, perhaps I've stolen a few things, but I've never committed adultery. And we begin to think of some more serious than others. And like the Pharisees then, we start putting the congregation into different categories and we start looking down on some. No, the catechism here and scripture puts us all together. And it says, there's no room for pride. You're all in the same situation. You all have that depravity in your nature that keeps you from perfectly maintaining the law of God. And you need Christ. And everything that you have, it's a wonder of God's grace. It's freely given by God. You don't deserve what you have. I don't deserve what you have. Others don't deserve what they have. But we look to God and the wonder of His grace and His mercy in Jesus Christ. And this causes us, beloved, to look forward to the coming of the kingdom. We long for the fullness of that glorious kingdom where there will be no more sin, no more suffering, where everything will be the fullness of perfection and glory. But this brings up then the whole struggle of the child of God. As Reverend Hooksma puts it in his commentary on this commandment, the perfect, imperfect Christian. The fact that I have that new life of Christ within me and yet... I yet wrestle because of the depravity of my nature. And there is that struggle, that difficulty that Romans 7 talks about. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, I do. The child of God knows that battle. And it's a battle from which he is never able to escape in this life. But he confesses what the catechism says is true. As I stand before the law, And as I hear the law read, I can't rise up in pride. There's no room for me to condemn anyone else. I can't take up the first stone because I'm convicted. 
And I learn more and more to know my sinful nature and become more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. And the reality is that I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace alone. Anyone who comes and says, oh, but this is too severe, then the response is, you don't know yourself. You don't know your nature. Look at your own heart. What about those secret sins that you don't want to confess? What about the sins that you don't even realize? Beloved, we can be so pious in some areas and such damnable hypocrites in other areas that we begin to walk in a manner that reflects that pride. And again, by God's grace, our pride is humbled and we are brought to see ourselves as we are in that mirror of the law. Saved by the wonder of God's grace alone. And as we get older, that reality settles in more and more. If we're looking to old age as the opportunity to attain a level of holiness that you've not attained earlier on in life, then you need to forget that anticipation. Now it's true that struggle against some sins perhaps gets different and it's modified. Riches and fame and honor and earthly possessions don't mean as much as we get older, perhaps. But the struggle of the heart and the soul against sin, the sin of contentment, of covetousness, of pride, is real. And it continues to plague one until he or she dies. The devil constantly at work trying to urge discontentment in our lives. How do we understand then this idea of beginning? A small beginning. We think of a beginning sometimes as the beginning of a stream or a river. It starts little and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's not the idea that the word is used here. The word here is used in the sense of a seed. That which has the essence within it, but yet has not been brought to the maturity of its fullness. So that the seed is there, the seed is alive, but... That seed is not yet developed to the point that God would ordain. We have, as those who are regenerated, the new life of Christ within our hearts. So that the Spirit is able to say concerning believers in 1 John 3, 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. The idea there is that no child of God with the life of Christ within him can continue sinning without repentance. God will bring that one to repentance. God has given him or her the new life of Christ. And that which characterizes their lives is that new life. That seed, that principle is there. Even though the child of God is yet sinful, still has that nature that's imperfect, that seed remains a seed until we're delivered to glory. And God brings about then the fullness of that wonder. There's growth in sanctification as an influence that that seed is there. There's growth in doing battle against sin as evidence that seed is present. Sin will not conquer. Sin will not overcome because God will work repentance. He will work true sorrow. as evidence that that seed has the victory in our lives. That small beginning may not be used as an excuse to sin, That small beginning causes us to fall on our knees again and again, crying out to God for grace and 
for strength. That small beginning keeps us humble. We realize that there's so much that's unfaithful within me. Now, beloved, when we're young, the sovereignty of God doesn't mean so much to us. Sometimes we rebel against God, we're set on doing our own things. But as we grow in spiritual maturity, we find our refuge in the rock of God's absolute sovereignty. And we find the wonder of God's sovereignty as our encouragement and our hope. And we learn to look to God. God is faithful. Again, He's my Father. He's my Shepherd. He's my Lord. And so I pray to Him. I cry out to Him for the grace He alone is able to give me. And what a blessing that He leads me in the way everlasting. That He sets my feet up on a rock. That he provides me with the lively preaching of the word in order that I might be fed spiritually. That he gives me the songs of Zion that are the balm of Gilead for my soul. So that through life and through the challenges of life, he works in me that contentment, that patience, that grace day by day. There are songs for every occasion. Songs when I fall into sin. Songs when I fall into severe sin. There are songs for when I have to bury my loved one. There are songs for when I experience depression and despair and sorrow. There are songs when I experience joys in my life. And what a balm our Lord provides as He works in us that grace to know Him, to love Him, and to walk in thankfulness to Him. And that's our desire, to be thankful children of our Father, our Shepherd, our Lord. This law then needs to be preached. The catechism addresses that reality in question 115. The question might be asked, if if I can't keep the law perfectly anyway, why would we preach it? Why would we continue to teach it? Sermons on the law need to set before us continually that mirror in order that as that mirror is held up before us, we look in it and we see what God requires We see who we are, and we see the wonder that directs us to the cross. The law preached as a rule of gratitude. It's the way I show my thankfulness, my love to my God. Never does the law and my obedience to the law add to my righteousness that's in Christ. I can't add anything to that righteousness. That righteousness is perfect as Jesus Christ performed everything that was necessary for me. And never do I imagine that my good works, my obedience to the law, somehow is going to add something to that righteousness. My good works are the fruit of my salvation. My good works that God has before ordained are the thankfulness that God works with regard to that salvation. But I'm directed to Christ and to see that The righteousness that I need is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And His righteousness is the perfect righteousness. He kept the law perfectly. He did so. Even in circumstances that were extremely difficult. He knew loneliness. He knew what it was never to marry, never to have children. He knew what it was to be oppressed and constantly persecuted, ridiculed, mocked, misunderstood. He endured it perfectly, obediently. Even when God's wrath was poured out on him on Calvary, he bore away all our sin, all our guilt. And by his spirit, he writes his law 
on our heart. And he says, I have fulfilled my law. Keep now my commandments in thankfulness. There's a fourfold fruit then, beloved, that the catechism points out that we are to see in our lives as a result of the faithful preaching of the law. First, sensitivity to sin is increased. We must go through life as those who are sensitive to sin, as those who hate sin and flee from it. And by the strict preaching of the law, we come to understand more and more, what is it that God requires? What is it that constitutes God's holiness? We realize that to be a Christian isn't just to live in a certain way, just to outwardly fill a certain category. We realize that sin is a matter of the heart and the inner being of man. And we see our sin more fully. But secondly, with that increasing sensitivity to sin, the preaching of the law causes us to see that I need Christ. I can't do it of myself. I'm dependent upon him. And the deepening sense of sin drives us to the cross. Faith doesn't give up in the midst of the battle against those sins that trouble us. Faith presses on through Christ, through whom I can do all things. And more and more looks to Christ and clings to the cross and the power of his spirit. And we see the need for forgiveness and we realize increasingly that there is no hope apart from the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is my comfort in life and in death. But thirdly, the faithful preaching of the law also serves as an instrument of the Holy Spirit to move us to sanctification. We're never satisfied with our present situation. Always examining our life, always desiring more fully to be thankful and to walk in a manner that shows thankfulness to God. And that longing for spiritual growth, that longing to thank God and to praise God, that desire to be holy even as He is holy, to live unto Him, is that which God works in us. And as a result, we pray for grace. We pray for wisdom. We desire to keep all the commandments. And we desire to walk faithfully before our God. And we look to God to work that grace in us by which we love Him and we love the neighbor. We're not satisfied, and we never will be satisfied until we get to glory. But finally, there's hope. The preaching of the law sets forth the hope that is ours as it directs us to the cross and as God works in us that joy of what great things he's done for us. Sinners, those who are given to lust, those who allow that lust to develop and to conceive within them, are the objects of God's love in Jesus Christ. And God forgives. And God gives us the assurance, my grace will prevail. I know that you can't keep the law perfectly. God steers us around the pitfall of despair. If God said to you and to me, this is what I expect of you, and this is what you must attain before you can get to heaven, it would all be vain. We would despair. We look at ourselves and we would say, I know what I am, I know who I am, and I know that I'm never going to maintain that perfection. And then we would say, I must not be a child of God then. If a child of God is someone who attains that perfection, that's not me. I must be a reprobate then for the thoughts that I have and for the desires that go through my mind. No, beloved, the result by God's grace is that we hear God's word and God comes to us and God says, I love you. I know that you will stumble and you will fail. 
I know that this battle is raging within you. In your flesh, there is no good thing. But you have the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are to walk humbly and faithfully before me. I am your Father. I am your Shepherd. I am your Lord. And this is the way of thankfulness. This is the way of praise. That I now by my Spirit work within you. The way that works joy. The way of contentment. The way of peace. And we go on, pressing forward in the blessed assurance of the victory that is ours in Christ. This victory is sure. This victory is certain. And the triumph is complete. We flee to the cross, beloved. We confess our sins. We seek forgiveness and pardon through the wonder of God's grace. And we pray, grant, Lord, the grace by which we might submit to thy sovereign hand in our lives and live our lives unto thee. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us the discontentment. Forgive us the lack of peace and struggle that we experience daily. And work in us that we might know and trust our sovereign heavenly Father as the one to whom we owe our all. And may we show our thankfulness and our praise and our adoration today and every day. Amen.